Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Jerry the Monk Hutch has tonight appeared before the Special Criminal Court charged with the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel in February of 2016. Our Crime and Courts correspondent Sarah O'Connor will bring us the latest. As teachers and Garthi demand to be included in COVID-19 bonus payments, we ask who should be eligible for such payments. Independent TD Verona Murphy, General Secretary of the INMO Philney Hay and Finn Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne will be here in studio. Every effort is being made to avoid winter blackouts, according to the Taoiseach. But why are we only beginning to discuss energy blackouts now? Journalist John Gibbons and Friends of the Earth Director Ushin Coughlin will be here to discuss. And later, has the pandemic changed the way we view death and the costs associated with funerals? Celebrant Connor Clear and Director of the Iona Institute, David Quinn, will join me. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, Crime and Courts correspondent Sarah O'Connor joins me now live from the Special Criminal Court. And Sarah, perhaps you can bring us through events earlier this evening when Jerry Hutch arrived back into Ireland. Yes, Claire. well, really such a significant day for officers investigating the Regency Hotel attack of February 2016 and the murder of senior Kinnan associate David Byrne. He was shot dead in the reception of the hotel on that afternoon. An extradition guard the flew over to Madrid to bring Jerry Hutch back today on a military plane because of the threat on his life. And at 7.04 this evening, he arrived back on the Air Corps Casa plane at Baldonnell Military. Military Air Base. He was then met off that plane by Garthi from Ballymont Station, who arrested him, and then he was placed in an armed convoy. He himself in a black van, surrounded by ERU officers, and then transported here to the criminal courts of justice. They arrived here just before eight o'clock this evening. He was then led into the court through the side entrance and up to the holding cell at the side of Court 11, the special criminal court. And Sarah, what happened tonight in court? Well, the judges uh, walked into the court at a quarter past eight and then the much-anticipated appearance happened. Jerry Hutch walked out and into the court. He was dressed in a cream blazer, a white linen shirt and beige uh, trousers. And then he sat down and looked ahead for the duration 
of the short hearing. He was represented by senior counsel Brendan Grehan, instructed by Ferry's uh, solicitors. And Detective Superintendent Paul Scott of Ballymun Station uh, took the stand and told the court that he arrested uh, Jerry Hutch at Baldonnell Airport at 7.12 this evening and then he met him in the precincts of the CCJ and he read out the charge to him. And that charge is that he's accused of murdering David Byrne, the senior Kinnan associate at the Regency Hotel on the 5th of February. Uh, 2016. The book of evidence was then served on him and the registrar, he stood up and the registrar asked him if he was Gerard Hutch and he replied yes and he sat back down again and then the charge was read out to him again and he nodded slightly and Brendan Grehan, his senior counsel, said that uh, his legal team would be reserving their position in relation to the lawfulness of his arrest and charge and also the jurisdiction of the Special Criminal Court uh, to try him. Uh, he also said that bail in this case would require serious consideration. He informed the court that his client, Jerry Hutch, was fully vaccinated, that he had received a negative COVID test result uh, today and so legal teams could then consult with him in the coming two weeks. He was remanded in custody automatically because of the nature of the charge and then led out of court and he was uh, escorted then to Port Leash Prison for this evening at least. It's up to the prison service then where they send him. He may remain there or he may be sent to Wheatfield Prison but for now he's remanded in custody in prison tonight in, back in Ireland and he is remanded to appear again in two weeks time. Sarah O'Connor at the Special Criminal Court. Thanks for joining us tonight, Sarah, with that update. Well, the government finds itself in the uncomfortable position of having to decide what the pandemic bonus should be and who deserves to get it. Well, joining me now to discuss is Independent TD Verona Murphy, General Secretary of the INMO Filney Hay and Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. I want to start with you, Malcolm Byrne. Um, is everyone agreed in principle in government that there should be some form of recognition for frontline workers? Uh, I think so. Um, there, there are probably three elements to this. Um, and I think specifically on the issue of support for frontline workers, um, Minister Michael McGrath has said that there would be a considerate approach, uh, but that we don't want something that's going to be divisive. I think in terms of the members that Phil represents, you know, everyone recalls those frontline doctors and nurses who were from the very early days of the pandemic, when we didn't know how things were going to develop, when we were seeing the scenes coming in from Italy, who were dealing directly with COVID patients when there was serious pressure in place. And I think people understand that that deserves to be recognised. There has to be a broader discussion around where else that needs to happen. I think the second element is that, that broader question uh, in society around how we market and whether we talk about a public holiday in St. Bridget's Day. I think there what's important is that we look at bringing together the social partners, that we bring together business, the trade unions, the community and voluntary sector, cultural, sporting, uh, creative organisations to look at, first of all, how we remember the more than 5,000 people who passed away during this period, and but also how we talk about communities coming back together. And I think the other, which is a broader issue, which is... Uh, you know, the, the bonus, if you like, about how we learn lessons from this. And part of that is around on health spending. Uh, so, you know, we've increased the health budget this year by 4 billion. 2 billion is to do with COVID, but 2 billion is also to address some of the underlying uh, issues. So we're talking about staff in, in additional staff in real terms. So for instance, this year, there are yeah. now 1,500 extra nurses and midwives. So we will have 
a much better health system coming out of that. But, but as I said, there are those three yeah, elements. And that's the big picture stuff, isn't it? But just specifically on the pandemic payment, um, who is eligible and who's left out? Like, is this a case of public versus private now that the government have allowed to develop of, of pitting public sector workers against each other? Essentially, because they're not saying anything and not confirming anything and letting all this talk happen, it's really dividing the masses, isn't it? Well, it, it, it shouldn't be a case of public versus private sector because I think, one, there has been, you know, it has shown, for instance, the resilience of the public sector, the contribution the public sector can make, both in terms of how we dealt with a very difficult public health situation and then the vaccination rollout programme. There are lots of people who contributed in big ways from the officials in the Department of Social Protection who in a very mm. short period had to deal with all the pandemic unemployment payments. And what, what the government is doing is, you know, and Minister McGraw was very clear in this, it's to try to avoid a divisive approach. It's about trying to ensure that there is recognition. But I think people do understand so that those direct frontline workers... It's about avoiding a divisive approach, does that mean there's something for everyone? No, it, it, it's not about... I mean, as I said to you, there, there, kind of, there are three elements in terms of, of looking at this. Because I know, and, and we've played them out, and yeah. there's big picture stuff, and uh, everyone and, was... And, well, like, and, and that's important. We know we were all in it together, there is that sense. But, um, you know, in terms of, of making that decision now, is there going to be a decision sooner rather than later? Will it, it be pre-budget? It, 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 it will be within, within the next few weeks. Um, it's a discussion that has to happen, obviously, between uh, the, the public sector unions, Phil's union, uh, and officials uh, from the department. But, you know, the government okay. has said we're going to get, it's yeah. going to be a considerate approach. Uh, um, you have to speak to officials before a decision is made on this. Yet, Phil, you say that there's been absolutely no engagement um, with the HSE on this issue. Well, I think the, the government and the, and the question you pose, the government have created this problem because we lodged a claim last November uh, where we outlined very clearly that nurses, midwives and other frontline healthcare workers in the eye of the storm had worked a, a large number of hours which they weren't paid for. They had forsaken breaks. They had redeployed into the private sector, into private nursing homes in order to assist when the staffing collapsed in the private sector. And Malcolm is right, the uh, underfunding of the health service that predated this, you know, required a big look at what was our staffing levels mm. like before we ever had a pandemic. We know we have a shortage of nurses and midwives. We knew we had that going into a pandemic. And then we had the additional issues of where those very staff themselves became infected. And um, you know, the, the memory of that period is still very real. And unfortunately, despite a very good and a very robust vaccination programme, we've seen figures of 4% of all infections so, again in healthcare workers in the past two weeks. With all of that in mind, what sort of reward would you like to see for you and your colleagues? What we want is what we looked for last November. We want to get into a dialogue. Like, everything Malcolm is saying sounds as if the government have been sitting back waiting for somebody to ask them to get into talks. Well, we asked them to get into talks last November. There was absolutely no engagement from the HSE. And then we had to refer the matter to the Labour Court on behalf of the very frontline workers okay, that so, the government say so the talk have contributed over and above the ask, which everybody, I think it's fair, I don't have to justify the fact that the, the nurses, midwives and other healthcare workers have a risk that is higher. That's actually identified in law because the, the, the manner in which they dealt with 
this horrible virus was that they put themselves at risk. Would 10 additional days holiday leave suffice do you think, in well, terms of a reward, a recognition of the services? Well, we quantified last November that at a minimum, that was exactly the additional hours. For example, if you just forsake breaks, if you quantify what that would look like for, for a nurse or for a midwife, that was 10 days. And that's what we said. We also said we're open to negotiating how that applies. What, what's missing out of this equation is engagement since last November. Uh, Verona, on this matter, what would you do if you were in government? Um, what sort of reward do you think should be offered to frontline healthcare workers and others? I think Phil is right. Nine months ago, we voted on this in the Dáil in order to reward uh, student nurses. The only people that voted against that motion were the actual three government parties on the basis that they couldn't afford it and where would it stop, what other apprenticeships would have to be brought in. They said they couldn't afford it. I'm not sure what's changed. But I do know in relation to any reward, uh, it has to be... Uh, fair and balanced in its application. It certainly can't and shouldn't be divisive. Uh, it can't start to pit one sector of employees against other sectors, which is very unhelpful. And I think that's where government engagement is now lacking. We're creating this divide. I don't think we can break the country in order to make the payment. And I think on that basis, it's up to government to decide on a figure. Okay. And if they can decide on a figure, then they decide how it's going to be divided. And that needs to be done sooner rather than later. So who should get it? Well, that's my point. We need to know first how much is available. OK, so there is that intends. estimate around. So the cost has been estimated. Now, Phil, you might say it's, it's different. The government estimate seems to be €377 million Euro for 10 e days extra leave for healthcare workers. That that's what that would cost. Now, that's without bringing other frontline workers into the picture, um, other people who worked during the pandemic. Would you say that figure is about I, right? I think that's overinflated, to be honest. And I think that what we have quantified is that people have worked additional hours for nothing. I don't think anybody in government will say that that's right. You're going to get those hours back. And, and as Verona said, think back to the, to the debate we had about student nurses who are actually in receipt of zero but working on the front line. Now, I don't support that. We have never supported that. And I don't think any government should be standing over that. Likewise, other governments right around Europe have made a contribution, have put a price on this, and they have very quickly and very early said, look, this mm. is necessary. Regardless of anything else, we have to show that the work and the additional work and the additional effort is going to be rewarded. And, and, you know, our government could have done that and we wouldn't be having this debate tonight. Okay. What do you think about um, other sectors coming out now? So we've Garthi, we've the teachers, the ASTI um, gave their response. As stated earlier this week, they told us if discussions take place around a form of acknowledgement of workers' contributions during the pandemic, we would expect to be included in these discussions. What do you think of that? Well, I think we lodged our claim on behalf of nurses and midwives last November. And, you know, if, if other grades want to raise the issue now, that's their business. I'm not speaking on their behalf. They're, they're perfectly able to speak. So you, don't to, take, to you, do, you wouldn't take issue with teachers, say, wanting a claim um, along with your workers who were there in the COVID wards, who no, were there what in, I, in what saying is, and dealing with the most... What I'm saying is time. the government have a very clear marker of what risk and what exposure to risk was... Uh, 
happened, if you like. So for example, of all of the infections in this country with COVID-19, there was a point when one in every three of those was a healthcare worker. So that level of risk and that level of exposure okay. obviously yeah, is unprecedented. It's a very, it's a very mm. fair point, isn't it? In terms of the risk and the risk people put um, for their lives and for, their, for those of their families. Many healthcare workers, you know, when they went home, had to isolate themselves from their families during this time. I, 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 and, and, you know, while you can't put a price on that, is that where the recognition should go or are we spreading it too thinly here? I entirely agree. And that was why at the start, I think I made the point about, you know, people recall that it was those, those nurses and frontline healthcare workers who the risk was far greater. They were dealing directly uh, with COVID patients. And, and Phil is correct because, you know, we all remember back at the start of this at a time when nobody knew where this where this was going we saw what happened in italy and that's why but i said why, like why is this why is this discussion taking so long to happen like we're just a couple of weeks out from the budget now as phil said this was raised by her members last november so, so, so the, why is it taking the, so long the, the principle, and creating this so, potentially divisive situation yeah. now so, so so the government is trying to avoid a divisive situation the principle is accepted in terms of that uh, and you know it's 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 not for for me or anyone on behalf of government to negotiate directly with the unions here on air, but the principle is accepted that there will be a, okay. a considered approach that's there. I think that what is also crucial, and it comes back to Phil's point, I mean, one of the things we learned from this is about the need to invest in health. And what yeah. we are now seeing is those additional nurses and midwives, which will relieve some of the pressure. We're seeing a very dramatic increase in the number okay. of ICU beds, which is also really important. I'd, I'd, but I have I'd, to come. I'd be quite concerned with that attitude because I think if we only looked at the wastage in the health service, certainly not in Phil's behalf, but at levels of what we saw at the PAC last week where we have 330 But there's not wastage spent, when we have extra ICU beds being created, wastage, which we are. Wastage is ordering 2,000 ventilators, half, most of which were never received. 81 million spent, 35 million of it never to be recovered, 300 million on PPE gear, the children's hospital. That type of wastage could make Phil's job an awful lot easier. It could have seen the nurses, particularly the student nurses, at a time when they were having to pay mm -hmm. rent when they didn't have a wage to look after vulnerable Bruna, people. So I don't see what's changed here. We're actually, yeah. we've come through the most awful time we've spent 30 billion. And yet Malcolm is now conceding and government that this is warranted because it wasn't warranted nine months ago and we were only talking about student nurses. I have to say this is not just the public sector. This is about everybody. There were people who served meals on wheels, security guards, and truck drivers. And there are so, there are so many people. And I just, if, if the, so say it's 377 million if you're looking at those um, additional holidays for healthcare staff alone, if you're spreading it wider and if the cost is going up and up and you're looking at hundreds more millions there, that's Those very issues you're talking about, yeah. they're, that's exactly they're not going to be resolved, are they, if we're spending our money there? Most certainly not, and I think that's what government needs to do, make a decision. As Phil already said, this has, been, this has already happened in other countries. It's happened in America, it's happened in Australia. Government needs to take this serious. They're actually causing the division that they're trying to avoid. Phil, you want to come in there? Um, just yeah, I just want to go back to a point that Malcolm said about the additional staffing. You know, that sounds like, God, you know, we're all right. We've recruited additional nurses. The reality is we have a huge problem in this country with shortages. Tonight, uh, there are wards where, for example, uh, nurses should have and midwives should have, uh, you know, staffing levels 
in order to ensure safety, and that simply isn't the case. And we know for a fact that the uh, investment in the, the framework that is now government policy to determine how many nurses provide safe care hasn't been funded, wasn't funded last year. So in the budget this year, we're expecting that if the government stands over its policy, which is in order to provide safe care, have safe outcomes for patients, we have a formula that tells you how many nurses you need okay. per patient. And that simply must be funded in this budget. Okay, very briefly, well, 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 are we expecting an announcement on this in the budget? Uh, I, I can't see within the budget, but certainly, and, and we, were, we had a presentation from Michael McGrath um, this evening, that it, it is anticipated will, it will be dealt with shortly. It has to be remembered that last November... Will it be Michael McGrath making December, the announcement around it? Well, as, as the Minister responsible for public sector reform, we've engaged with him. We've also spoken with Minister Donnelly. The, the principle is, is agreed. We've got to remember as well yeah. last November that the public okay. sector pay talks were happening. That was also then negotiated. Again, you're referring once we come to, to public sector. Once we come to... But once we come to... Well, well the government can sure. only make a decision around the public sector. Certainly, I think it's okay. important employers to also be generous to those okay. staff in retail and cleaning we'll staff and others. Look, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, my thanks to the panel. Verona Murphy will be staying with us. And after the break, Airgrid warns of electricity supply shortfalls over the next five winters. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back. Well, just before we move on, some of our viewers have been in touch about the pandemic bonus. One saying it has always been public versus private sector, even before COVID. Um, another says teachers weren't consulted by unions before this claim and they haven't heard teachers ask for it. Um, one viewer said there should be no bonuses for anyone that was paid to do their job during, during this time. And another teacher getting in touch, that's on the teacher's claim that they want in if there's any sort of um, divvy or any sort of payment. Uh, a secondary school teacher says they do not want a bonus, bonus and says the union does not speak for them. Now, Airgrid has warned of electricity supply shortfalls over the next five winters, but the Taoiseach has said he can absolutely assure the public that both he and the government will make every effort to ensure that what needs to be done will be done. Well, Independent TD Verona Murphy is still here and I'm joined by journalist John Gibbons and director of Friends of the Earth, Oisín Coughlin. Um, John, I want to come to you first. We've quite a panic created today when Minister Eamon Ryan came out on radio this morning and said... 
uh, the government could not be absolutely certain that there wouldn't be any blackouts this winter. Um, we did have subsequent assurances from the Taoiseach and the Dáil, but in light of that and the air grid report on these next five winters being um, filled with shortages, it, it's pretty stark, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, I think this are, we're seeing here, I suppose, uh, a number of issues coming together, really, at, at this time. We have obviously increased in data centres. Uh, we also have an increase in overall electricity demand. This has also occurred. But I do think it's important to, to, to recognise that overall our, our power system has been a success story over the last number of years. For example, we've increased probably by 40% the amount of electricity produced in Ireland, yet the, the carbon intensity of that has gone down by about 40% over, over recent years. So by and large, the direction of travel is good. However, people obviously were alarmed today when, when, when they heard that. I think people would have liked Eamon Ryan to have been able to say, we guarantee this won't be the case. But the phrase he used is tight. Things are tight. We're moving into a situation and there is a number of reasons for this. For example, we know that two of the gas-fired uh, generators are offline and they're partly offline because of the difficulty of repairs for them during the COVID pandemic. So that was part of the issue. That took them offline for, for quite a period of time. Uh, and also, I suppose, um, there is, as I said, there's that demand issue that we're seeing being driven by the data centres. And obviously it was discussed in the Dáil tonight about the possibility of a moratorium on data centres. I understand that was rejected. Uh, the question really is, can we afford at this point to be adding massive, massive capacity from data centres with questionable value to the wider Irish economy. And also it seems we're, we're over-carrying our share of data centres. I think, uh, I understand we may be carrying a quarter of the data centres for yeah. the entire of Europe. It's interesting on this one, Oisín, the Greens are saying that in regard to data centres, they'll have to live within the carbon budget. How will they do that? What's the general environmentalist perspective on these large data centres that are really eating up electricity? I mean, campaign groups like Not Here, Not Anywhere and Future Proof Clare have been sounding the alarm on data centres for quite some time now. It's taken the rest of us, including Friends of the Earth and certainly the government, some time to catch up. Um, but when you look at the numbers, they are very startling and, and, and somewhat disturbing. Like in the last four years alone, we know from the Airgrid report now, uh, the amount of data centre demand is the equivalent, the new demand is the equivalent of adding 560,000 homes to the electricity grid. Over half a million homes in four years is the equivalent of what we're given to data centres. And that's 11, now 11% 11 of our electricity. And our grid's saying if we keep going like this, it'll be at least between 25 and 40% of all our electricity will be for data centres by the end of this decade. So you say pause them? Yes, it's time to press pause because I think what's happened is like, the government didn't plan this, to be fair. They slept walking into it. We, mm. we came up with a policy two years ago uh, in the last Fine Gael-led government, which was basically, big tech likes these, we like big tech, so that, that's fine. I don't think they, that, that, that document from 2018 has no analysis of the likely growth path yeah. and no analysis of the climate targets. So it's out of date and we should be pausing any new connections, not locking ourselves in to, to more data centres okay. and more electricity demand until we have a proper assessment of, of, of what's possible. Um, the data centres here, they are a big part of the infrastructure though for big tech, aren't they? Which we know the government says that we're so reliant on and that we need this industry. And we've heard business lobby groups come out today and say, no, let's not blame the data centres for all of this. We need to get our, our, our policy um, really into focus here. What do you think? Yeah, I actually agree with that sentiment in part. I think this is typical of where 
where we see the cart before the horse in a government policy. There hasn't been any preparation, as Oshin has outlined. This has been muted, by the way, from the Greens since about 2013. Now they're in government and it's been pushed through. We're going to see a carbon tax applied in this budget, an incremental increase, which is at this point, highly, highly dangerous. I mean, we have businesses and family homes faced maybe three to four increases of energy this year. Mm. They're pushing a policy that is uh, projecting that a million electric cars will be on the road in the next 10 years. But today, like, I, know today I think we have 30,000, yeah. Claire. Imagine if we had 100,000, the grid would collapse. So it's a policy that's been driven that's unimplementable. But, and I but think it's, it's a policy very we, dangerous. Are being, we are being both, sort of forced to implement. Both the carbon tax. The point about that is that it's unimplementable implementable because there has been no infrastructure put in place to support okay. the policy. Irish people, by the way, are actually quite compliant. You've seen them all through COVID. If the electric chargers were in place to buy electric cars, Irish people would, without a shadow of a doubt, try to comply. But both it's just not both the carbon tax and that target for electric cars are from the last government. Uh, so they're, so they're, not, they're not new policies and that incremental increase in, in the carbon tax has been, has been agreed by the Doyle now each of the la for the last couple of years. But we now have a climate law that says we have to reduce our emissions by 50% by 51% by 2030, in line with our EU targets, in line with the US, in line with, with uh, other large, large Western economies. So therefore, we have to divide up that, that remaining emissions cake, that pollution pie, between transport, between farming, between uh, heating our homes, and between electricity demand. And if we give it all to farming, we have to do more all ourselves, and farming isn't offering very much cuts at the moment. If we give it all to data centres, though, the rest of society, from hauliers to, to our private cars to homes, that is, all have to reduce our, our demand for energy even more. When Nashi points out, you know, in line with the UK, in line with America, we, uh, there's a very interesting article from Kieran Fitzgerald in Agriland this evening. We have caught our herd back to the average dairy farm of 95 cows per herd. That's 120 in Scotland, it's higher again in the UK, and it's higher again across Northern Ireland. Like, we seem to be driving this as if we are going to cure the world problem of carbon emissions, and it's going to be but detrimental. Individual countries have to reach targets as well, John. Like, are they realistic, these carbon targets, by 2030, when we're talking about um, the, the energy crisis we're having sure. and, and the lack or the worry that, that we don't have the sources? I mean, there, there's, there's realistic and there's necessary. We cannot continue to treat carbon targets like an optional extra when we haven't got anything else to worry about. So the idea, for example, well, we'll deal with our carbon targets when we've sorted out Brexit. We'll deal with our carbon targets when we've resolved the energy crisis. They're all connected. And as we've seen in the hellish summer of 2021 in the Northern Hemisphere, one of the most extreme probably the most extreme weather, weather pattern we've ever seen in the Northern Hemisphere. If we don't get on top of the climate emergency, then all bets are off. And this is coming at us so much more quickly than we think. And if I could briefly go back to a point Verona made earlier about, let's just imagine we had a million electric cars on the grid. I know we won't, but let's say we did. Now, what that then gives you is a, a gigantic battery because using smart technology, that million cars could actually be able to release battery energy back to the grid. They would actually serve as a virtual power station. So it's really important to but understand. Do we have that infrastructure in place? Will we have it in place? Well, the, smart to that the smart technology is moving. For example, my house was recently uh, fitted with a smart meter. Now, that means, for example, over the next number of years, you will be able to do things like energy control and demand, where the grid can say to me, look, we want you, at a particular time of the day, we don't want you 
you to put on a heavy load of washing or plug in your electric car. And in, in turn, how about your electric car is charged up during the day, but meanwhile the grid needs energy between five and seven. Will you sell energy back from your electric car to the grid? This is not fantasy, by the way. No, it's not by any means. By it's any fantasy, means. but certainly what we... I, I listen to what you have to say, John, but the reality is we have come out of COVID or we're coming out of it. We're coming out of Brexit. COVID masked Brexit. Mm. We've seen a 30% increase just since Brexit on transport costs alone. If we are going to wins, like we have passed an incremental increase in carbon mm. tax and legislation. You're just, it's you're not written in stone. But we, are at, we are in danger of causing a recession if we drive inflation at this but rate. We have to be very, very careful, Lushin. There's low-income earners here. There are old-age pensioners who will not be able to afford. We will drive them into fuel poverty on what top you, of driving the country What are you suggesting, Verona, just in terms, because we know we're going to see closures around coal-fired plants and oil-fired plants. You're saying don't close them. Claire, the reality is... China opened up 42 coal plants this year alone. What about our carbon we, targets? We have to meet targets, but they are too ambitious. They're no, idealistic. They're, 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 they're not realistic. They're, not, oh, they're, they're idealistic. idealistic. No. They're too idealistic. ambitious. To be, no, they're not too ambitious. For rural and regional Ireland, all, they absolutely are. First of all, you cannot negotiate with physics. You cannot negotiate well, with the Well, they did 10 years ago when they told enough, us to buy diesel cars. The science was wrong, to stave off complete the climate science breakdown. was wrong I then, don't. and I think that's when No one's asking Ireland to do more than our fair share. The reason we have a challenging target for, for 2030 is that we start that we twice in, I, in, the, in the 2010s and the 2090s, we didn't do enough scale. action. So now we have a lot to do in 10 years. Well, but the good news is a lot of it is economic opportunity. Oh, like this huge economic opportunity in retrofitting, in, in the wind industry. We, we are the yeah, Saudi Arabia of wind. Because like, a lot has come into to question here on the government policy and the strategy now when there's this sense of maybe panic around our energy supply. It's how are we planning for the future? Like, what's, what's happening with those offshore wind farms? Uh, the you... wind wasn't strong this summer and now it's creating a problem. So well, are it, they guaranteed the short -term to work and -term, for us I mean, and is it going to provide those success, solutions? Wind is a success story. Last year we provided 40% of our electricity from, from wind, uh, which is one of the a world leading percentage and we are, we are world beaters. Airgrid is a world beater at integrating wind onto the system. It's 30% this year, so it's not as good as it was last year, but the year isn't over. It's, it's, it's still a significant contribution. What, but we have to move on, on uh, offshore wind and on solar, uh, which we're very far behind on. We're, we, have, we actually have a lot of solar potential in Ireland, as much as large parts of Spain, because it's daylight, not sunshine. And yet we haven't enabled schools to put solar panels on their roofs after the private planning permission. Yeah, just a quick one on this. Some, some uh, viewers have said, should we consider nuclear energy, which provides energy security and low carbon generation, saying excluding it means we still rely on fossil fuels and will never meet well, net zero. John. Well... Before I get to nuclear, I just want to reiterate uh, what Oshin said. We had our first solar auction in August of 2020, and we've bought up about 600 megawatts of new solar power. And to put that in context, that's almost as much as what all our data centres are using. Now, that's only the start. Now, that obviously is, is, is for a certain period of time. But solar is the perfect complement to wind. Also, at the moment, the, the statistics that we've achieved, that 42% was achieved from onshore wind. Offshore wind is the real bonanza. There's an absolute bonanza. Okay. And we will be a net energy exporter by the end of this okay. decade. Look, we there have to leave it there. In well, the government to do this. They actually need more civil servants to move these things Okay, along. all right. Look, we'll have to leave it there. We never got to uh, the nuclear answer, but we may do another time. My thanks to the panel. And after the break, David Quinn and Connor Clear will be here to discuss 
whether or not the pandemic has changed our approach to funerals and death traditions. back now more and more people are opting for alternative forms of burials in recent years and here to discuss is director of the Iona Institute David Quinn and independent celebrant Connor Clear and I want to come to you first David um, the growth of alternative forms of burial it is something that is certainly it's becoming more popular mm -hmm. is it in part due to the, the large cost that's involved with funerals I think it's that, but I also think it's because we're, uh, we're becoming a different kind of society and more secular. So it's like there's been a switch um, from church weddings to hotel weddings, for example. And that trend particularly happened when you didn't have to get married in a civil registry office as an alternative. And I think something similar is happening with funerals. So as we're becoming more secular, people are kind of thinking, well, do I have to get buried through a church? Um, and they're thinking, well, no, not necessarily. And so they're going to alternatives like Connor provides. And um, like the Christian way of it doing it obviously is um, you get buried in a Christian graveyard. Um, so the churches don't like, you know, your, you know, your ashes getting scattered in a lake or in the, in the um, river or sea or woods or whatever the case may be. But obviously as um, people become secular, they're thinking, well, I don't need to get buried in a Christian graveyard, so I'm going to go for an alternative. And uh, there's also a kind of back-to-nature aspect, I think, of this as well. And also, I mean, as you say, the cost is a big part of it. So a funeral involving a plot and an expensive coffin, thousands upon thousands, where obviously, uh, if you get cremated, you're talking about maybe hundreds, and then uh, you, have no, you, know, you have no burial plot. Do you think the pandemic and the restrictions that were in place for so long here also changed the idea that people maybe had around grieving a loved one. Whereas we used to have big funerals, packed churches, it all had to be brought, like very difficult for some families when mm -hmm. you could only have so few family members there. But it changed our idea around the ending of someone's life and how to remember them as well. Yeah, I mean, it's like so many other things that have changed in society over the lockdown. Um, um, how many of the changes would be permanent? And so will there be a permanent change to funerals? I mean, there was a friend's um, elderly mother there died recently and they could have had more of the funeral, but they decided to keep it very small and to keep it, you know, immediate um, family, basically. And you just wonder, uh, because I, I, like the removal on the day before, plus the funeral the next day has got to be trying to some extent in families. And so we may begin to do things differently permanently. Interesting. Um, on this one, Connor, now you class yourself as an independent celebrant rather than a humanist. What's the difference? Well, yeah, that's actually an interesting place to start, I guess. Humanism and, and, and the Humanist Society is a very specific organisation and, and it's a very different thing. And I think a lot of Irish people in, in, in the years since we've moved away, or well, ha, have been moving away, I should say, from the Catholic Church. I think we use humanism and, and a humanist ceremony as a byword for anything that's Different. not religious, you know? Um, now, they're a wonderful organization, so I don't say that with any kind of negative sentiments, nothing positive sentiments, in fact. Um, they're a wonderful organization, but um, like that, they would be a very specific Thing and they have a belief system attached what do you to, find to what they people do. want when they come to you? Well, what I've found as I've moved into this, what they want is choice 
and the ability to be able to, be able to personalise a ceremony. And that's something then that I can offer to them. And it's, and it's actually, it, it, it's very moving sometimes when I have that ability to be able to turn up and meet a family and be able to offer them everything and say, yes, I can do this. We can, and, and, and interestingly enough, very often when I sit and, and, and chat to a family and I say, well, okay, well, what were the beliefs of your loved one? And, and they'll say, well, you know, she was, she was religious, but she has moved away from the church, which means I can step in and introduce prayers, religious elements, while still centering that ceremony around the deceased yeah. and as well around the family as well, because that's their goodbye to their loved one. Yeah, and essentially no limits in what you can do. Um, well, on this, a little earlier, I spoke to the director of Knockma Woodland Burials in County Galway, Donna Houghton, and I began by asking her about the type of services that the Woodland Burials offers. Well, we're actually open to all religions and beliefs. So it's just not one kind of ceremony or service, as it were. And uh, we have people who turn up with the undertaker and they'll have a religious ceremony. Uh, the church are very happy to concentrate, consecrate the burial mm. plot. Uh, or there's other people that'll turn up and they'll have a humanist ceremony. And we've even had families that just do their own quiet thing. And uh, very individual, very much personal choice. We're open to uh, anything. And how does it differ from traditional burials? Uh, well, the traditional burials, you've been in the church, you've had the service, um, you have the normal um, cars and uh, the undertaker and the hearse. When you get to the burial ground, uh, you may carry the coffin from the hearse uh, through into the woodland, or the hearse may drive down to the spot, depending on the weather and time of year. So that's all very normal. Um, I can't really say that it differs greatly, but as I say, it's uh, not necessarily controlled by the undertaker. We you know, listen to what uh, the individuals want at the time. So people coming to you, are they looking for a more eco-conscious approach? Because you're in woodlands there um, yeah. and it, it's very different to your traditional plot in a graveyard, isn't it? What sort of process yeah. do families go through then? Certainly. Well, I, I first of all, I'd like to point out that uh, this thing about traditional, we are used to the traditional graveyard. That's what we call the traditional burial system. But in fact, going back centuries, it was woodland burials. And, you know, religious orders uh, have been using woodlands for centuries. I actually worked for a religious order and a good friend was a monk and he told me he would be buried in Monk's Wood. So that's where I first came across it. And I was surprised that it was such an old tradition. But uh, for the, uh, what we offer here is that uh, people, they're intrigued. They want to come and see the alternative. They like the idea of getting away from the graveyard where we see the headstones and lines of graves and all the various trinkets that are left. Uh, the woodland is an, a tranquil place, calm place, where people can walk around. You often see them smiling and enjoying the connection with nature. And I think the fact is that because people have a choice nowadays, that they like to see the other options. And Donna, can people personalise or customise a burial spot? Are the graves marked in the woods in keeping no, with nature? No, 
Uh, it's quite different and you could walk through the woodland and you won't identify a lot of the graves. Uh, people can have a totally unmarked grave or they can choose to have uh, an Irish native tree planted uh, and they can have or they can have uh, a stone laid on the ground which is no bigger than 10 inches by 12 inches with names and date of birth and death on. Okay, Donna Horton of Knockmaw Woodland Burials. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. There are certainly alternative ways of doing it. And I mentioned the cost at the start, but I saw there was a report in the paper about the average cost of a plot costing €2,000 now in Dublin. I'm sure it's a lot less for a woodland burial or alternatives there. Um, and I, I'm wondering, you know, cremations as well now being on the rise, that we are seeing a change, aren't we, in how people approach funerals because of that? You see, it wouldn't surprise me if in years to come, uh, you see, the whole idea of being in your own um, family or individual plot is actually quite recent. It's maybe in the last 120 years or so, and it was a sign of growing affluence because people used to be buried in common plots. Um, and you'd know your family member was buried, we'd say, in the parish graveyard but he wouldn't necessarily have you know, their own plot and their own headstone because nobody could afford it. And weirdly, we may in time go back to that because the cost of having a plot in the city would be so expensive. And also, uh, in cities, it's common not to be buried in a graveyard anywhere near, you near where you live. And so it's become increasingly uncommon for people to actually go and visit the graves of their family members. So I think people in the future will be thinking, do we actually need our own plot? Do we actually need our own... A gravestone. So I think it's possible in years to come we'll go back to uh, burial in, uh, in um, communal plots. Right. And it'll be much, much cheaper. Is that something the church would consider? Well, I mean, it did it for centuries upon centuries because, again, people literally couldn't afford their plots and they couldn't afford their headstones. Um, talking about adapting to what people want as well at funerals, you did a ceremony recently and the family were wondering could they play techno music? Oh, no. Oh, well, OK, so I, I wouldn't talk specifically about funerals, but I think the one you're talking about was a, a disco uh, megamix. Right. Um, but the one thing I will say, and I'm sure there are people <laughs> watching tonight thinking, that's the most inappropriate thing, and I'm, I'm sure, David, you'd think it's, it's quite inappropriate. Would it be inappropriate? But, <laughs> in a church, perhaps. In a church, yeah. But I mean, again, like it depends on what you believe. Um, I mean, usually funerals are fairly solemn. If the person is very elderly, it could be a celebration of their life. But techno music is a new one on me. I've well, I have to say, it was a very beautiful moment. And as the celebrant standing at the top, to see the shift in dynamic in the room and the change in energy from sombre, solemn sadness, which is fair enough, to see the shoulders going down, and mm. to see uh, joy and love and celebration permeate through the, the sadness. It was, it was quite a beautiful moment. And, and I think when families are given that choice, it can make the occasion so beautiful. And, and most importantly, just if I finish up on this, I think my ethos as a celebrant would be, and that, that is an example of it, that, that specific ceremony, is the idea that if a family gets that ceremony that they need, they can then walk away from that funeral saying, look, we gave him a good send off. And that is the first steps in a healthy yeah. grieving process like, for them. Does the church have the to move a little thing. bit? Like we've heard that at weddings that it depends on the priest and what they'll allow in terms mm. of music and all of that. But is there a case to be made that really to move with the times, give people what they want and it to be a celebration and be it with you know, whatever music of their choosing, that they should have it? Yeah, but I mean, it has to be a limit, I guess. I mean, if it's going to be in a church, um, 
uh, it's going to have to be something that's fitting for a church setting. So I, I mean, I, I heard uh, like what Connor was saying there on the okay. technical uh, music well, thing. I once heard about a person we'll being put to... in the grave as a match of the day. Has been. Oh, okay. We'll have to leave it there. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast. Next news on Ireland AM tomorrow morning from all the team. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.